Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue, a show where we take questions straight from you, the viewer, from all of our different content we produce. Duncan, we took a week off because I was in Disney. I learned a valuable lesson about the difference between a trip and a vacation. <laughs> a family trip is one where everyone goes to bed at 9 p.m. because you're all tired from all the activities during the day. And a vacation is where you stay up late and, and party and have fun, and that, that was not what we were on. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised you're not wearing uh, Mickey ears, you know? I was, the, back with some of those. I was the only crank in the family who didn't have like head-to-toe Mickey Mouse or Disney gear. Uh, anyway, right before the show, I actually got a, I've given some book recommendations before. Poor Charlie's Almanac. This is something I read early on in my career. We actually had a relative of the person who worked on editing this book, and it's, it's all of Charlie Munger's different speeches he's given over the years, sent me a signed copy. I think he sent a signed copy to the office, too, for Josh and Barry and Michael and some other people which I thought was very cool. It's, it's a very good book. And this guy is 98 years old now, and he was out there spitting fire yesterday calling Bitcoin a venereal disease. And <laughs> I just hope I make it someday to that age where I think it's basically 80 plus where you just stop caring at all what you say and what people think of you. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful, so, so I would like that. Um, I just want to say real so remember, if you have a question, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. And you can also leave some... Um, some feedback there as well. So we got a feedback. Last time someone asked, hey, I want to YOLO into a rental property in Austin, Texas. I want to cash out my 401k. We think he was cashing it out and not doing a loan. Didn't really specify. But someone said, hey, I'm surprised you guys didn't talk about the fact that there's a tax issue here. So if you cash out your 401k, you're paying taxes on it and then the 10% penalty for early withdrawal. Now this person who wrote us in may have been taking that into account, right? They may have thought about that ahead of time and netted that out. But that's a, that's a good thing to think about. It's something that we didn't mention. So thanks to the audience for pointing it out. Always, again, send your feedback or leave them in the YouTube comments. All right, what do we got this week? Okay. So first up, we have a question from Victor. I'm saving to build a house in early 2023. I have around $18,000 saved and anticipate saving at least an additional $9,000 uh, before I build. Gemini offers a yield of 8% APY on its uh, stablecoin and is considered one of the safest crypto exchanges or platforms. Should one consider using stablecoins to generate greater savings for things like a down payment or other non-emergency savings? You get a lot of questions about this. Yeah, because hot topic, stablecoins. 8% and then if you, even for an online savings account, you're earning 50 basis points maybe, right? A half a percent. And the finance people look at this and say, this doesn't make any sense. How could you earn 8%? This doesn't, it just doesn't compute. I actually, I wrote a piece last year comparing stable coins to money market. And I actually think this is kind of off topic. Stable coins could be the gateway drug for a lot of people into crypto. I think stable coins could be huge, especially since it's a global asset and people could use it as, as dollars potentially and earn a lot of money on that. Separate topic. So first of all, why do stable coins earn such high rates of interest? So we talked to Zach Prince from BlockFi about this a number of times. You may have heard of BlockFi. They're the company that got fined $100 million by the SEC this week. We went into this on depth on Animal Spirits this week. Yeah, you uh, did a good segment on that. Everyone should listen yeah, to Yeah, it kind of Animal felt Spirits. like they were the sacrificial lamb here. It wasn't like they were doing anything nefarious, but it, the way I equated it is they were kind of like Uber and Airbnb just going into these markets before regulations existed. Like the, the SEC didn't really have regulations. They, they said, you know, stable coins are unregulated securities and they had to pay this fine. Now they're going to be regulated. Setting aside all the boring regulatory talk, first of all, the one thing to understand here is that there are no traditional forms of finance in crypto. Like, there's no banks that are doing any sort of lending. If you want to borrow against a stock or a stock portfolio from 
basically any brokerage on the planet, you can do so at a very low interest rate. We've talked about that a few times. People borrowing against their portfolio because you can do so at, I don't know, 2 to 3%. Maybe those rates are, are going a little higher now because interest rates are rising. But there's just not as many options for borrowing against crypto. So if you're a person who got in early on Bitcoin or Ethereum or something, you've made millions of dollars, and your significant other says, hey, I want to build a new kitchen or buy a new car with that money, and you say, no, 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 I'm a holder. I'm never selling. You want to somehow unlock that newfound wealth that you've made, so you borrow against your crypto. And because there are no traditional forms of lending here, the places like BlockFi and Gemini that do allow lending can do so at a high interest rate. So I think they charge like 10% if you're going to borrow at it, since crypto is such a new form of collateral. And oh, by the way, it's a very volatile form of collateral. So that's why they're able to charge higher prices. So I don't want to sell my Bitcoin or whatever because I've made a ton of money on it. I don't want to pay the taxes. I want to borrow against it. You borrow against it, these stable coins are paying the spread. Just like you borrow for a mortgage at 3% and the bank pays you 0.5% and they keep the spread, Gemini or BlockFi are doing the same thing where they're lending out at 10 and paying 8 and keeping the difference. right? And then there's also institutional investors who are borrowing for arbitrage opportunities or market making and trying to short up. But that, that's the, the idea here. So that, that's how you're able to earn these high rates. And I would say, as this stuff matures, you would expect those rates to come in a little bit. right? But, but that, right. that's how it makes sense. And the other risk factor here is just that you don't know. This stuff is still so new, right? I mean, some people worry this stuff is going to get hacked. Some people worry about the security of it. Other people worry about the counterparty risk. So the company that's actually paying the interest, that's, that's potentially a problem. It's not FDIC insured. So that's this type of thing. But I think about this in a few ways. So I have money in stablecoins at BlockFi. But I think, like, do, am I going to use this money in the next, I don't know, 3 to 12 months for spending purposes? If that's the case, I don't think you think about this in terms of all or nothing. Like, I'm going to put all my savings into stablecoins because earning way more interest, or I'll leave all of it on that. I like to diversify and have a little bit in both. So I, I have money in online savings account not earning much, and I, I feel pretty safe about that. It's FTSD insured, all this stuff. And I have money in stablecoins earning money. I think for house down payment, especially if you've got your timeline figured out, I think you can do the calculations and figure out how much more money you'd make earning 8% versus earning less than 1% and figure out, is it really worth it? And again, maybe not do an all or nothing type of thing, but uh, yeah, I think this is something people are still working on. We talked to Zach at, at BlockFi. He said, listen, if it's emergency savings, I don't think I'd feel comfortable leaving it in there. But if you're saving for a boat or something and it's down the line and it's not something that is going to make or break your, your family or your, your, your finances, maybe that makes more sense. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like diversifying with a savings account at a bank is the target date fund of, uh, of, of this. Yeah, and, <laughs> so it, and it's like... because again, you're not earning those higher rates of return for nothing, there is some risk here. And BlockFi, after settling their uh, thing with the SEC this week, said you can't put more new money in now, and you can, and no one can open a new account. So this stuff is still so new. I think that that's that's part of the problem. So you have to have a little bit of risk appetite to earn that eight percent. Right, that makes sense. All right, let's do the next one. Okay, uh, up next we have a question from. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing this right, but Yannick. Uh, and they write, I'm a 33-year-old movie producer in L.A. We've had several movie industry people write in, which is kind of cool. Uh, I'm a 33-year-old movie producer in L.A. and have my own company, so no steady salary, but I will make anywhere from forty dollars to $150,000 this year. Uh, I currently have $125,000 uh, saved. Personal finances are in good shape, no kids, no debt. I'm currently renting and have a roommate, and it sucks. My goal is to get a house by mid-2023 in the Valley, preferably sooner. Most of the houses are about six hundred fifty dollars to $850,000. Do I need to put myself in a larger cash, cash position since I want to spend the money soonish? What's a good ratio? 
should I wait until I have a big enough down payment or go for it when I find the right place? Would it be better for me to save a larger down payment since my annual income varies so much? Now, Duncan, the, the Duncan Hyde wants to know, did you ever think about going to Hollywood after going to film school? Or was you always a, more of a New York independent film kind of guy? So, I mean, my plan was to stay in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was like, you know, Hollywood East, uh, but the <laughs> film industry died there because of a bunch of uh, convoluted, you know, tax stuff. Uh, oh, they had people coming there stuff, from the tax. But, okay, I yeah, got gotcha. you. Yeah, you seem like but, a more uh, East Coast kind of guy to me. Yeah, that's that was my plan. Yeah. All right, so this question is basically, do I wait to save for a larger down payment to buy a house? Do I just try to do it now? What, what do you think is a good ratio here? I think it seems like an old wives' tale that you need to have a 20% down payment for a house. And obviously, the, the one biggest reason for it is because it gets you out of that PMI, the private mortgage insurance. If you have a 20% down payment, you don't have to pay that. It's, it's really not that much. I don't know. It's, it's, depending on the size of the mortgage, it could be anywhere from 50 to 150 bucks a month, something like that. It's so not terrible. So 20 is the cap for or the, the floor Yeah, for that? so you need to have okay. a loan-to-value ratio of 80% to not have to pay that. But So let's do a chart on here of the median down payment. This is from the National Association of Realtors. That shows the median down payment by age. And you can see all buyers is like 12%. But if you're in your 20s or 30s, the, me the median down payment is more like 6% or 10%. You can see people who are older can afford a bigger down payment. And that makes sense because they have more financial assets. When you're younger, you don't have those financial assets. And that's the thing that's holding a lot of young people back these days is they think, well, I can afford the down payment, even these price these higher price houses, but I can't afford, or I can afford the monthly payment, you know, because interest rates are so much lower. I can't afford the down payment. I think that's holding a lot of people back. When we bought our first house way back in like late 2007, we put 5% down. And we weren't doing it because, ah, we said, let's lever up this house because it's a great deal. It was, that was all we could afford at the time. It would have taken us a lot longer to buy a house if we waited until we got 20%. So I think this person mentions they have a variable income. I think they probably have to think about, like, what the lender will do for them and what their credit situation. It sounds like their personal finances are in good shape and they have no debt, so they should be in good shape. Put this next one up that shows this is from the same report. The reasons mortgage re lenders rejected by applications. And you can see there's a bunch of different debt-to-income ratio is the biggest one. So if this person has, I know it's a, it's a variable income, but they don't have any debt, they're probably in pretty good shape. So here's what I would do when I'm, if I'm in this situation. I'm thinking, well, I'm going to buy a house in a couple of years, but they already have a, they said they have a roommate and it sucks, they said. So they probably are ready to do it now. I would shop around for a lender. I wouldn't go to one place. I wouldn't just go to my bank. I would look for a bunch of places. And the great thing about the internet is you can shop around these days, see what kind of down payment they're looking for. That way you know how much money you need and, and what your sort of uh, ranges in terms of the house you can get because they'll tell you, listen, we'll lend you up to this amount and between these two amounts, that's what we can give you. That So you kind of have a range and I think then you start looking for houses because the, the process can take way longer than you expect, especially now with supply is so low these days. I wouldn't really wait. I wouldn't wait for a 20% down payment. I wouldn't wait for like housing prices. I know people say I'm going to wait for housing prices to fall or I'm going to wait for a recession. I think you find a house because you like it, it's that stage in life, you can afford it, you can service the debt, and it's something you want to live in for a number of years. So I think trying to time this thing perfectly is probably not a great situation, but I would definitely talk to a lot of lenders now. Don't wait to do it until you have a 20% down payment because what happens if you get to that point and then you can't find a house or they're more expensive? I would start the process early. Yeah, no, that sounds like good advice. There's, you guys have talked about this before, but there's so much more that goes into buying a house that is important to you and, and that you're going to live in for a long time than just you know, trying to make, make the best math decision. Yes, and, and I think as long as you're looking at it as something that I'm going to be in this for five, seven, ten years at least, minimum, you know, obviously life can get in the way and change that. But from the start, if you, if you say, I'm finding a place that I'm going to be there for a while, then I think that takes away some of the investment stuff where you can get burned by a bad housing market if you just lengthen your time horizon a little bit. Right.
right, let's do one more. Okay, so up next we have the following. Uh, this is another fun one. I'm an engineer in New York City who joined a SaaS startup a few years ago, just before unicorn status. The path to IPO is underway, and over half of my options have vested, but I'm not. I have not executed a single one. My equity at current fair market value will be about one million dollars. I currently have two hundred fifty thousand dollars invested in the stock market, uh, and if I come into this windfall of equity post IPO and after taxes, I'd like to know your thoughts on. And then they have a couple options here. So first. Leveraging this equity for a stock-secured loan to either reinvest or use for a down payment. Um, selling my equity immediately despite short-term capital gains hit. This is growth tech, so it could be up 100% from the IPO or down 80%. Uh, and then lastly, what are your thoughts on using some of this windfall for a down payment in Manhattan? Great. This is, yeah, this is a good question. Obviously, a good problem to have, but this person is going from you know, a quarter million dollars to you know well over a million dollars in net worth, assuming that their IPO price doesn't fluctuate too much more. So th this is definitely more of a financial planning question than an investment question. So I'm going to bring in uh, Blair Ducanet, who's been on the show before, to help answer this one. Hey, Blair. Hey, ben. Hey, Duncan. Obviously, like, there's no right or wrong answer here. They give a lot of options, and I think they're thinking about this the right way. But like, how do you approach a situation like this when your net worth basically overnight grows in multiples? Like, how, do you, how do you help someone think through this decision? Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations, right? Making money off of working for a company that's very successful is one of the fastest um, ways and, and you've gotten lucky. So congratulations to you. Um, one thing to keep in mind, and you hit the nail on the head, this could be you know up 100 or down 80% after the IPO. Right now is sort of not a great environment for IPO stocks. Um, and I actually put together a chart of some of the recent names that we've seen go public. Right. So this is what you're looking at with single stock security risk, whether it's um, like a Robinhood or a rent the runway down over 60 percent uh, since their IPO price um, or even a Coinbase down 40 percent, Bumble down 44 percent. Right. So this is the environment we're looking at for IPOs. So your, your question about should I leverage this stock uh, with a securities back loan? Absolutely not. Um, you really do not want to lend against, uh, borrow money against something that's volatile. I'd be surprised if they lend you even 25%, right? And keep in mind that if the stock is down 60, 65%, you're getting close to the point at which uh, you're going to have to sell the stock and pay off the loan and you're, you've completely wiped out all so, of your equity. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Take that off the table. That, that makes no sense. You, if mm -hmm. you do that, you do it for a diversified portfolio. But how do, you, how do you deal with the psychology here of someone thinking like, we're going to IPO, but what if this thing grows even bigger from here? So yep. how do you deal with the psychology of, listen, I know I need to diversify it. It's smart. It makes sense. But what if I, I, I'm just worried that I'm going to regret this decision and I want to hold on to some of it? How do you deal with that? Yeah, this is a tough one because um, if you sell and the stock goes up, you're always going to do the math in your head about how much you could have been worth. But what you have to decide, knowing that the future is unknown, is how much are you not willing to risk in the stock? How much do you want to go ahead and take off the table? Now, you mentioned taxes as well. If you do not have longer than a one-year time um, holding period, you are going to um, owe short-term capital gains tax, which is generally at a higher rate than long-term. So you're going to have to play all of these factors. I would say come up with a number in your head. What's a number that I'm not willing to go below in net worth? Probably sell that immediately. Right. Um, come up with another number. What's a number of shares that I want to hold forever just in case the company does really well? 
and put those aside. And then maybe the remainder you sell over time after you have long-term capital gains treatment. There's no perfect answer. And you're always going to go back and play mental games and, and do the calculations. Uh, but you have to make the best decision without having the information about what's going to happen to the stock in the future. And I do think your point about the ones, the stocks that have crashed recently from IPOs is a good one that people are kind of coming to reality and thinking like, okay, in the past, I would want to hold on to these forever because look, they all went up for years and now they're coming down. I think I think that's put a dose of reality for people on this type of stuff. How exactly. The last point of his question though was, should I put this down on Manhattan real estate? Um, so I would never bet against the city of New York. Um, obviously, you know, there can be time periods of softness in Manhattan real estate. I'm hearing that condo. Are you are, saying are James Altucher well. was wrong? hundred <laughs> no percent. Okay. I'm having my Jerry Seinfeld moment here. Why would you bet against New York? If you want to live in New York for at least the next seven to 10 years, and that's where you're going to make your home. Uh, absolutely. Use this money for a down payment. Um, but if you're buying it for an investment as an investment and don't expect it to do better than the stock market, we've talked at, at ad nauseum about real estate um, as an investment, but as a home, hundred percent, I'd love to see you in your dream Manhattan apartment. Yeah, especially since the net worth is multiplying so much, like using that as a down, I think that makes a lot of sense because you're diversifying your balance sheet then. All right, Duncan, we got one more. I, I have just a quick uh, new boil question there. So um, is there always a lockup for all employees of a company when it goes public or is that just for certain employees? It depends. Some companies have that and others don't. So that, that's okay. something okay. that's worth knowing. But yeah, that depends yeah. on the company, I think. Gotcha. Okay. Exactly. Nothing you can do about that though. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Okay, so up next we have a question from Mark who writes, I have two 529 plans to pay for the college expenses of my two kids that are six years apart. I've saved enough over the past 12 years to cover private school for both kids, and my expected annual returns have been a modest 7% or higher. I don't use target date funds. I don't know if that's a slight to you or not, Ben, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm about two years away from my first tuition bill, and I want to start planning my drawdown strategy. Do you recommend allocating a year's worth of tuition at a time into a more conservative fund as the bills come due? Would that ensure that the short-term bills can be paid while still letting the longer-term investments grow more aggressively? By the way, for my kids' 529 plans, I actually do use the target date fund options. For this, for this reason, like I don't have to do it. It, it. it does the glide path for me. So we have a lot of haters out there in target date funds. But <laughs> Blair, I think the, the idea here is especially from a financial planning perspective, accumulation is way easier for most people than going through the withdrawal because like it, it requires, accumulation is easier because you're just setting your savings rate and you're hoping it grows and the market does what it does. Withdrawal strategy is a little different, especially for something like college because I think, I think actually for college it might be a little easier because versus retirement you have a much longer time horizon. For college you have these four years and you kind of know what it's going to be. Um, but like as you approach that level, like what's the point where you start saying, all right, I'm completely shutting off the market risk here and getting out and so, so how do you approach that one yeah and and this reader has done a great job of saving because i'm hearing that private schools today are costing anywhere between 60 to eighty thousand dollars a year so kudos to you for doing that saving and investing um your time horizon now is between two and six years at least on the child who's who's older um longer obviously if your children are six years apart so think of it in terms of time horizon i also use the target date fund because i don't want to have to you know go in and make changes as my kids get older and i looked up in the state of louisiana my target date fund even on the aggressive side goes a hundred percent in short-term bonds and cash when the child turns 16. Oh, that really interesting. Be a, yeah, that might be a little bit too much um, on the conservative side, because if you're thinking about that fourth year of college, it's still six years away. You could make the argument that even if the market were to sell off now, it may it, it will probably have recovered. But think in terms of three years, right? 
you're going to be making that second year payment. Um, I'll give you a three year, two, three year examples, August 2007 to August 2009, great financial crisis in between. You really don't want to see your hard on savings be worth less after you've already won. Um, you know, 2000 to 2002 is another three year example. So maybe 50% or more should be um, in fixed income at this point. Go ahead and lock in those gains. Right. Yeah. Because essentially, again, you have the end date. When you're retiring, you could have two, three, four decades ahead of you. So like that stock bond balance makes more sense to like overweight it to stocks potentially, depending on your, your resources and stuff. But if you have a four year period, or like you said, start thinking about it two years before, like, you know, your end date. Right. So so taking too much risk of that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. OK, absolutely. Perfect. So I did see we had someone in the comments suggest that our our Hollywood producer look for a credit union. I think that's a great idea. I actually use a credit union for my mortgage. They actually offer better rates on the savings and checking accounts too. I get like 3% on my uh, on my checking account, not bad. Uh, so we appreciate the feedback. Uh, again, have some thoughts on the questions today. We always appreciate the feedback. Leave us a comment below. Uh, you can come in for the live show like all the people here. Uh, we're getting very close to Duncan's big round number of 100,000 YouTube subscribers. I think next week we're gonna do a t-shirt giveaway. We're gonna figure something yeah. out there, right? We yeah, have our portfolio yeah, rescue t-shirts. From the, from the chat right here, we're gonna do a giveaway. So yeah, tune in yeah. for that. So anyone who's not here live, check in live. We're gonna be doing a giveaway here on the live chat. Thanks again to Blair for joining us as always. Thanks uh, for having me. Yep, remember, uh, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com if you have a question, and we will see you next week. Also, oh, one, one other thing. We're watching Portfolio Rescue is now its own podcast. So if, uh, yes. if you ever miss a live... Uh, then you can find this uh, on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. I don't know, Duncan. They say I have a face for YouTube, so people should really watch it on YouTube. But <laughs> I know a lot of people prefer to have it on podcasts, so we're going to have yeah their own portfolio rescue feed, and we're going to put it up the same day, I think, right? Yes, same day. All right, thanks, everyone. Yep. See ya. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.